0: We're going to look tonight at 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me there. 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's been really fun to be with you all so far this weekend. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's been fun to get to know some of you. Um,. So, you know, if you have questions, I know you have, you, you're probably better to ask your questions as your campus minister, because he knows when you're lying and when you're not lying, you can lie to me and get away with it. But I'm glad to answer any questions if you have them. Uh, and it's just been great to be with you. <clears throat> for tonight and then for tomorrow, I thought we would look at two examples of people in the Bible repenting. <clears throat> we've talked about repentance and we've looked at it... Uh, <clears throat> You know sort of is you know how scripture talks about it, how Jesus emphasizes it, and now I just want to look at two people having to repent, and uh, this story will be pr- fairly obvious it 's actually a story of David killing someone, and uh, I got to learn about this squeaking don 't I um, but it 's not killing Uzzah when he committed uh, adultery of Bathsheba. This is a separate story when David was trying to move the ark of the Lord. And so Second Samuel is the book. It's chapter 6. Uh, it's a rather uh, lengthy uh, passage, but uh, nonetheless good for us. This is the word of the Lord, Second Samuel verse chap, uh, chapter 6. And David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, "How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me?" He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-edom the Gittite. The house of the Lord remained, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-edom the Gittite for 3 months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Now, just for a moment, that's actually David's wife. I know she's called the daughter of Saul, but David has married her, so you need to get that this is not just the daughter of Saul, but his wife also. And when she saw the king David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned to, his ha- to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us His Word. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for a beautiful day. We thank You that You speak to us very clearly in Your Word about who You are, about what You want and long for from us. We pray, Jesus, that as we meet together this weekend, we would be made more like You. The eyes of our hearts would be opened. We would grow in grace. Jesus, that we would glorify Your name. Lord, help me to preach. Help us to listen. Um, Thank You for uh, the chance even to do this. We pray this, Jesus, in Your name. Amen. We should not preach so quickly after supper. I'm standing in the back of my RUF at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and we meet in a room... That's, um, you know, that slants down. It's not flat. It's not gently sloping. It dropped about 20 feet in about you know, 30 rows. It was really steep, almost like a modern movie theater. And I'm standing in the back, and uh, they're leading the singing and worship up front. The lights are dimmed. It's probably five or six minutes after REF has started. You know, People are coming in. You know, people come in all the way up basically to the time you speak. And uh, I don't know that I would remember this event, <clears throat> but sort of out of the corner of my eye, I see someone come in, and I can tell that that person isn't walking to the aisles. They're sort of walking towards me. I mean, this isn't unexpected. People come up and speak to me. <clears throat> but as I turn, a girl I've, in my mind, in my mind, I've never seen, and certainly I don't know, opens her arms up, John, how are you? and goes for the full embrace hug. Now, there's nothing wrong with the full embrace hug, uh, except I don't know who she is. So I give her the, you know the campus minister hug back, the sort of because I don't know who it is. <clears throat> I think it took my wife and I two years to figure out who this girl was. We figured out that she was from a church in Knoxville that asked me to speak in their youth group, I'd never spoken to her in my life. But because I spoke to her youth group, and and this is wonderful, God used it, I was sort of her new best friend when she came to R.E.F. But I want you to picture me standing there in the back of the thing, sort of hugging her and thinking, what in the world am I going to do? I mean, there was nothing really to do, but you feel like, I I mean, my core group girls don't hug me. Um... My intern didn't really come up and hug me when she saw me. So this is sort of a, new, a unique event, and I'm left going, what do I do with this? Now, nothing, you know, it's a fun story. It wasn't like, you know, we had to have a trial or instructor not to hug me. It wasn't that, but I want you to enter into sort of the moment that I had in the back of the room as I turn, and I'm like, Hey! Because I didn't know what to do. I mean, do you just go for the, you know, the side hug to try to pull that off? Or, you know, there is that hug, sort of the no. there's nothing really touching it all, just sort of the, the forearm hug. I mean, what do you do? And we just went for the full first cousin hug, and that was fine. And, you know, there you have it. Uh, but I feel, You know, when I talk to groups, when I have the privilege of preaching, uh, when I do counseling with campus ministers or with college students, that, that sensation of not knowing what to do plagues many Christians. Especially when you begin to talk about the idea of repentance, Christians become confused. What do I mean? Christians really don't know what to feel. Even you this weekend, as you may have listened to what we've talked about as you've considered God's Word, you're probably confused. I mean, am I supposed to feel really bad about myself? I mean, is that what John is after? I mean, does he want me to really just sort of pull the the cloud over my head, let it rain on me every day, and sort of frown? Or on the other hand, am I I'm supposed to know I'm sinful, but am I supposed to feel happy all the time? We've all got that friend that we're sort of jealous of. They're the happy Christian. I mean, they're just every day's a great day, and every day's blessed of God, and we sort of wish we could enter into their life, but we can't. And we are left wondering, what do I do with this idea of repentance? And I think David in this text practices repentance if we cannot spit in it the whole night and like that. If we could see David repenting, we'll get some idea of how to hold these two notions together. And that's what I want us to look at. I'm going to show you, I hope in this passage, what happens in your mind when the Spirit brings repentance into your life. What happens in your will when the Spirit brings repentance in your life. And then what happens in your heart as the Holy Spirit works repentance in your heart? First of all, what happens in your mind when you have repentance? Okay, in the passage, you heard this story, it's a long story. But here's what's going on. If you don't know the characters, that's fine. David's the king of Israel. David is the leader of God's people. And the ark of God that's mentioned here, which would have been a box, probably that would have uh, held this piano. It would have been about eight feet long about three feet high and about four feet wide, but it was made of gold. It had two birds on the top or two seraphim with their wings closed. And in the middle, the wings were pointing to the middle. In the middle, there was nothing. And that's where God lived. It's sort of cool. If you know anything, the Israelites followed in the desert, a pillar of fire at night, a, a, you know, a cloud during the day. And what was under that was this ark. This is God's home. And David and Israel have lost it. It was taken from them in battle. and so when it's given back to them, David goes to get God. I mean, you I mean that's a lot of pressure to lose God on that, you know Tuesday. Where's God? I mean, we parked him in the mall, and you know we got no idea. This would be a great Seinfeld episode. but anyway, so the story can sort of I mean don't get don't get lost in all the details. They're going to get the ark. It's the center of their worship. It's the center of their lives. They know nothing of how to follow God without it, and they go get it and they put it on a new or a new cart. We're told, and they're pulling it along and they're celebrating, and they come to a threshing floor, threshing force where they dumped all of the various wheats and they stepped on them so it would have been muddy. It would have been really beaten up, and as a cart went through, it would have sort of been like a dirt road, right? So this guy doesn't want Jesus to fall in the mud. Seems like the right thing to me. Puts his hand out, bam, he's dead. Now, you need to know this. If, you, if this story is sort of bothersome to you, I understand that, but know that they were commanded sort of in numerous ways to never touch this. It's sort of like the modern bathroom. You go in every modern bathroom in any restaurant or you know pilot, there's six signs employees must wash their hands. It's not it's I mean, who could miss this? And so they missed it and when he touches it he dies. And this is what we're told. I want you to when you to enter into this, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, "How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me?" When the Holy Spirit really brings repentance into you, what happens to you is you begin to see your own sinfulness. You begin to feel sinful. And you begin to wonder, how could God ever love me? This happens to everybody. When God works in your heart, bad news is brought to you. And that bad news is this. You're a sinner... And it would be just if God killed you and judged you. Not you simply, even me. All of us as sinners stand before God guilty. And this symbolic act of Him touching this cart and dying leaves David wondering, and you've wondered this, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can God ever love me? I I simply want you to feel this. Part of the answer to what repentance feels like is it feels like me recognizing I'm sinful. When I said this morning, one of the words that Christians have to learn to say is, I'm sorry, that flows out of not sort of, not sort of southern manners, or your sort of obsessive mother who forces you to say this when you don't really mean it. Go tell the neighbor, I'm sorry, when we all know you weren't sorry, you would do it again. No, this flows out of a real recognition that you've hurt Others and God. I mean, that's where David is. David has had a man killed. We know for sure he's a brother, probably a father. There are children without a dad in this text. And what happens to David is he realizes that there's nothing he can do to make God happy with him. And if he's not careful, he'll kill kill more people. But there's something else here and this is really where it becomes befuddling and yet freeing. Now, at the end of 10 it says David was not willing to take the verse 10 he was not willing to take the ark of the lord to be with him in the city of david instead he took it aside to the house of obed-edom the Gittite. Now here's a good question for you who is obed-edom the Gittite? We don't know. He's nobody. He's not a priest and he's not a king. I like to think he's a plumber. He's just a regular dude. Now, here's the deal. He's probably out watching. This is sort of, you know, for free, but he's probably watching the parade of the first movement. Probably lives right there near the threshing floor. Watches this dude touch it. It wasn't in Indiana Jones. There wasn't, you know, stoppage of time, clouds opening. It was like this. He touched it. He fell down. Somebody put their pulse. It It wasn't, you know, Don't touch the arts. It wasn't that. I mean, so he's probably watching it, and the parade stops, all the, you know, all the you know, worshiping stops. And then everybody backs away. And David's like, put it in his barn. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure he and his sons are going, all right, here's the deal, the barn's off limits. I, I bet there was probably each morning that he just stood and looked at the barn and thought, yeah, it's not worth it. But this is what the text says, and it's important that you sort of get into this idea that he's nobody. <laughs> it says, the, uh, verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, the Bible's going to have its way to say Obed Edom was not different than other men. The reason he was blessed is because they moved God into his house. I bet they didn't watch any more television. <laughs> And then David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything He has. So David went down and brought up the ark. See, when David discovered the bad news that he was sinful and that his sin destroyed him and others, he then hears the good news that God will bless anyone. But God will especially bless no ones. That God is in the business of blessing Nobody's I'm telling you you can look search far and wide for it. you won't find Obed Edom listed anywhere else as an important person. He's me and he's you. See David learned this God wants to bless his people. This is the dilemma of being a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, this is sort of the, this is the not the hard part, but this is the schizophrenia of it. On the one hand, I am a sinner and I justly deserve the wrath of God in my life. I deserve for God to annihilate me, to put me in utter darkness, to make me completely alone, to cut me off from everyone and everything, not to feed me, not to bless me, but I I, I deserve that. But God wants to bless John Stone. It'll never get easy to hold those two together. And I'm here to tell you that whatever you might believe about the Holy Spirit before today, I'm sure I know at least one thing the Holy Spirit does to everybody. He convicts us of our sins and glorifies the love of Jesus in our life at the same time. We would like for them to be separated. We would like for Him just to glorify the love of Jesus without us having to see that like our roommate would be better off without us, but it won't happen. If you think about Scripture... This happens almost all the time, and I'm going to show you. I was watching Discovery Channel High Death the other day, and they were uh, talking about how they debut, uh, it was about cars, about automobiles, and they were showing how they, I don't remember if it was Chrysler or Toyota who it was, but they were uh, introducing a new line, a new car. I wish I could remember it, but this is what they did, and this may be why they're going broke. They spent $50,000 on mirrors. And they rented out this huge warehouse and, they, you know, they decorated it to the nines. And everything except the floor were covered with mirrors. And underneath the car, where the car was spinning behind the curtain, were mirrors. And everybody's in there and they're drinking, you know, drinks and they're eating hors d'oeuvres and they're acting all sophisticated. And they stop and some, you know, sort of great announcer, a great voice, blah, 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 car. And this is what I remember all the lights go out. It becomes pitch black dark. And you hear everybody sort of gasp. And then the curtain opens and the car slowly spinning. And one pin light hits it. But when it hits it, it they've set it up so it reflects off every mirror. And slowly the car begins to fill the entire room. So that wherever you are, all you can really see is this car. Now... That's a whole other sermon about our obsession with machines, but it's actually a good illustration of this point. <clears throat> Jesus tends to shine the light on your heart to reveal your sinfulness. And most of us sort of at that moment think, God must be against me. God must be disappointed in me. I must not be living the way I should. I'm here to tell you that the more mature you get the more clearly you see not the car but yourself. That simultaneously that light doesn't just reveal your darkness, it reveals His beauty. And you cannot have one without the other. Think about these people. Think about Peter who preached at Pentecost and thousands were born again. On the night of Jesus' last, on Jesus's last night, three times he said, "I don't know Jesus." Now look, I've had bad days, I mean terrible days, but I hadn't stood up in public with other people. Go, I got no idea who Jesus is. I mean, this is sort of as bad as it gets. Peter was at his lowest moment, and just a month, just now months later, Pentecost. How? God shows him who he really is. And he shows him who Jesus really is. The Apostle Paul, probably one of the most effective Christians ever, de- declares about himself that he is the arch of arch sinner. You know, like the arch enemy. Uh, this is at the end of his life. If you look at Paul, he uses stronger language about his sin the older he gets. And yet, here's someone who deeply knows Jesus. How about Moses? Moses tried to deliver the people of God from the Israelites by murdering an Egyptian and God uses him or how about David David not only kills Ahio here's what he does he sees a woman bathing on her roof lust over her has her come to the palace they have sex she gets pregnant so he decides to kill her husband It's a great plan in my mind. it just get you sent to jail or put on any kind of news show today. It's horrifically horrible. And here's what we don't like to hear. The Bible and the Spirit are forcing both into us. You're going to read the Bible some days and you're going to think, Good night. You're going to consider your life sometime and the way you think about other people and God's going to give you sort of this real moment of truthfulness about yourself. And you're going to despair. And God's also going to give you clarity about the beauty of Jesus. What I want you to see is that in your mind, there will always be two things operating. The blackness of who you are and the beauty of who Jesus is. And that's what happens in our minds and it happens to all of us because the Bible is always balancing us between those two things. But I want you to notice what happens in our wills. David, when he hears about Obed-Edom the Gittite, decides to go, I think one of you should name a a child that, by the way. Can you see somebody in Birmingham Southern? What's your name? I'm Obed-Edom. That would be sort of cool. Um, I'm Obed-Edom the Jacksonite. Um, It says, So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom the Gedite to the city of David. Now notice verse 13. Follow this detail with me. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fetid calf. Notice how different that is from the first time he got the ark. It's very different. The first time he got the ark, it says that they put the ark, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. Now, what's happened? Now, if you were to jump forward into, um, gosh, do I have it written down here? If you were to jump forward, I think, into Second Chronicles, we're told that David basically went to the Bible, he went to the law, and he discovered that the way you have to move the ark is. you have to have two poles made out of certain wood, and you have to have um, excuse me, you have to have priests carry it. And so there's basically 12 feet between any particular priest and the ark. So it must have been incredibly long poles. Why is this the case? In case it started slime, they just dropped it and said, I'm not touching it. Seriously. There's tons there. It's sort of a beautiful... Because Jesus is saying you'd rather be touched by dirt than us. I mean, it's it's a fabulous idea. But, you're lost. Don't get lost on that. Uh, Why am I telling you this? David went from disobedient to Scripture to obedient about Scripture. David went from not caring how God said to move the ark to caring deeply about how God said to move the ark. And what we see is that in his repentance, he began to believe the truth about Jesus, and he began to have a new zeal for the Word of God. Repentance and the Holy Spirit working in your life always brings for you a deep desire to obey God a deep desire to know his word. Let me argue with you just for a moment. Most of you think that the Holy Spirit brings you feeling really bad about what you did. I mean, that's sort of sort of our way. When we do something wrong, we think that repentance is, I mean, I just feel terrible about it. And we even tell people I feel terrible about what happened. I mean, I just feel awful about it. You've heard this. You've said it. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, uh, that was the wrong thing to do. What's the right thing to do? In discovering it. The Holy Spirit always works repentance through you in Scripture. It always creates for you a deeper desire to believe the Bible. Uh, I grew up in church. My mother made sure I was in church a lot. I grew up a Southern Baptist. Youth of the Year First Baptist Church came to one of the highlights of my life. What kind of church elects a Youth of the Year? Do you understand what kind of pressure that was? (laughs) There are at least three sins I committed simply because I received the honor out of rebellion. But this is how much I went to church. Sunday school, worship, puppets, mime team, youth choir training union, uh, no, prayer meeting, youth group. That was Sunday, I went seven times. On Wednesday, you went for the meal, and then for royal ambassadors. Got any royal ambassadors in here? Amen, brothers, yes. Yes, brothers. (laughs) Now, our royal ambassadors were really about beating the other teams in the youth league church. It wasn't really about Jesus, but that's a whole other discussion. But if if you're a Baptist like me, The one thing you do know is Bible stories, because you've been to vacation Bible school with the strawberry Kool-Aid and the little cookies with the holes in them. You put on your finger every summer. (laughs) And so, you miss those days. You wish they had adult vacation Bible schools for the cookies, because you're not going to buy yourself strawberry Kool-Aid. I mean, no. But, you know, I can't sing. When I first, I used to could sing it. Zacchaeus is a wee little man, a wee little man was he. But the song has ruined it for us. It really has. Because the song really talks about, <clears throat> you know, Zacchaeus goes up in the tree and Jesus says, I'm going to your house. And it actually, the, that's not the point of the story at all. Read it. The point of the story is what Zacchaeus says when he comes down out of the tree. He means a wee little man. How'd you like to be immortalized as a wee little man? But anyway, <laughs> not your best moment. When Zacchaeus comes out of the tree, everybody watching is mortified. Literally. Because Zacchaeus is neither Jewish nor Roman. He's a Jewish man hired by the Romans to take up taxes. And the way he pays himself is he charges you more tax than you owe. He gets to keep what he collects. So he had goons. There's no doubt about it. You don't pay the tax, you get beat up. I mean, this is, I mean, this is not a good guy to hang out with. <clears throat> if there's one thing this crowd would have been against, it would have been Zacchaeus. I mean, this is Nick Saban at an Auburn football game. You, you with me here? I mean, there's, if they'd had a gun, okay, you know, they'd have pulled the trigger. I mean, And so Jesus looks at everybody and says, I'm going to your house. I mean, again, great sermon. Jesus intentionally picks the most sinful, the person the furthest outside of the group, to go to their house. That's my phone, my children, my wife, don't worry about it. She's fine. She just dashed out. Um, and this is what Zach, when they, the whole crowd goes, What? Jesus, not Him. And this is what He says, Lord, if I've cheated anyone, anything, I give back four times the amount, and I'm giving the other half to the poor. It's a stunning statement. Zacchaeus makes himself impoverished in that moment. But the four times is him quoting the Old Testament law. Zacchaeus in that moment, when Jesus says, I'm going to eat with you, says, If you're going to eat with me, then I'm going to obey the Bible. If I've taken more than you owed, you get four times that back. In that moment... Zacchaeus is meeting the creator of the universe. And what happens in his heart is that he becomes zealous for God's word. He becomes zealous to obey the Bible. Honey, I'm assuming everything's okay. (laughs) Um, Now I can keep preaching. Zacchaeus, instinctively by the Spirit, becomes a Bible believer. You know, when you're a preacher and you come to the Bible believing point, there's really nothing for it. You sort of knew that before you got here. But what I want you to see is Jesus is pushing you to His Word. Two places where I think you need to hear Him I've said it before, I'll say it. You need to hear Him about your sex lives. I know that you go to Birmingham Southern. I know you go to Sanford. That just means you hide better. And you know that's true. You're not different than the culture around you. You're not different sexually. You just hide better. The only difference in you and people at Clemson is people at Clemson admit they're having it because they're not Christians. You just lie about it. You don't want to hear what the Bible says about sexuality. About restraining yourself. About saving yourself. But I'm going to twist again on you. Most of you also don't want to hear what the Bible says about getting married. Most of you live in sort of this teeter-totter world between, I want to be married, and that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me. You don't really see it as a positive thing. And the second thing I want to challenge you on is, I don't think you listen to the Bible about friendship. And so now I'm going to be serious about Facebook. A friend is somebody you can touch. It's somebody you talk to directly. The whole point of the Incarnation is to be personal. And so when God works repentance in your heart, you simply want to be with people. Most of our technology, while really wonderful, as I sat out there and watched the Florida LSU game before we started, as I checked email, as I really helped love somebody, even through that email, no doubt about it, this, isn't, this is not to burn your computer like we did our album, speech. In this, oh, y'all don't know what albums are. We used to have these plastic things and the songs played on them. It's really cut. You had to carry around this. Anyway, um, gosh, y'all missed some great things. People used to carry boombox. I mean, you poor people, but anyway. Much of technology and much of the way you think about academia makes you more impersonal. I mean, really. And you feel the loneliness of your soul. You feel that in so many ways, what Facebook makes you do is lie about your entire self all the time. With updates and status. I mean, if I really got in there and been honest, would be like, Yeah, my wife was bothering me today. And I was thinking, Why did Jesus do this to me? And my children were getting in the way of me watching my reruns of House. And the campus ministers were calling me, bugging the crap out of me. I wish they'd grow up. That's honestly what I would tell you every day. Jesus died for me. That's my only hope in life and death. I don't love people. I'm a human being. I am cart 17. But see, you can't really do that. Everybody would look at your little profile and go, Oh my goodness. They would unfriend you. If anybody really knew me, I wouldn't have friends. But the thing is, I need friends who will know me. And all of our technology is against you really being known. Because to open up to yourself, to be really full of repentance, is to look at people and say, Help me with my darkness. It's my darkness that's haunting me. It's what was done to me. It's what they did to me. It's what I did to them. It's what I'm doing to myself. It's my own self-loathing. And see, repentance really begins to let Zacchaeus go. If I've cheated anybody, this is the crowd he collects money from. He beats some of the people up in the crowd. They know every, when, some, when the bully on the yard took money from you, you know it was 37 cents. 136, it was 37 cents. He says out loud, I've cheated you my whole life. I'm giving it back. I don't know how that would have read on Facebook real hot, do you? I'm a tax collector. I love stealing and beating people up. Those are my hobbies. See, there's a real repentance and a zeal for God's Word that really begins to make us be obedient to this. What Christianity produces in most people's deep honesty. And we begin to be honest, which really leads us to the third and last point, what happens in our hearts. A lot in this passage, you can look at it a lot of different ways, but we see this, we see David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, and she's, she's called that because she stops acting like David's wife and acts like Saul's daughter, David is dancing in a linen ephod. And I'm, I'm going to only apply my points or application. I'm going to have two subpoints on what happens in our hearts. Now this gets confusing because one preacher is going to say he's dancing in his underwear, and that's just not true. So one application of this is not that you can dance in your underwear. <laughs> David would have never gone into public, ever, without having a king's outfit on. And the king's outfit probably weighed 100 pounds. It would have involved gold shoulder pads, almost sort of comic-like. If you've seen it, Hollywood would be accurate. Sort of these flat shoulder pads that would have had the 12 tribes of Israel sort of stitched in them. He would have had a crown. He would have had a breastplate, literally. A sword, a shield, and greaves on his legs. And only the king wore that. Okay, If you're wearing that, then you want some pretty serious thick Egyptian cotton between you and raw gold as you walk in the Christmas parade with the raw gold going on your ribs because it's ripping skin out. So he wore a really thick... Pair of long johns. That's what they were. So, you you don't, long johns are not your underwear. Don't discuss your skiing habits. You get my point. They're not normally the first line of protection. Leave it there and move on in that day. He had other things on under his long johns. And so, what is bothering his wife is not that he's dancing in his underwear, what's bothering her is that he has taken off any symbol of his power and authority. In fact, no one would have seen him that day as the king. Now, whole sermon, I realize. David's doing a bunch of good stuff here. Number one, and this is not the main point, he's saying everybody's the same when Jesus comes to town. There aren't smart and dumb. There aren't rich and poor. There are not ethnicities. There are no lines on the map. There, I mean, literally, there is an America Canada. When Jesus comes, we're all the same. And David is dancing before the Lord with the slave girls of his servants. Now, follow me. You've had a bad life when you're the slave girls of the slaves. So David has slaves, and they have slaves. And they're girls. Now, this is not the way we should act today. But in that day, girls have no status. Zero status. So what David is doing is he's finding the people with the lowest place. Now, look, you're going to want to be offended. Sort of, you know, modern sensibilities. The Bible's not saying this is the way women should be. This is Don't get lost in this point or you'll miss the point. The point is this. There's nobody worse off than them. And David says, when he comes, I'm them. There's no difference. In fact, David goes on whole sermon, and he gives what we're told, a, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women. Never done. No king would have ever given a gift to a woman. David is saying, Jesus is coming, and that means grace is true. We're all the same. We're utterly sinful, and our only hope is Him. And these are the points that, which means he's full of, really, two wonderful things. Let's say three wonderful things. Joy. Don't have time for it. Number two, he stops fearing men. I don't know how to say this to y'all, but it's what the text is implying. This is his wife, and he's choosing not to sleep with her the rest of his life. Uh, I'd call that not fearing men. I mean, this is a stunning decision by David. David says, if you don't understand why I dance with those girls, the Lord be with you. I don't need your love. Now, I can tell you I have to have that woman's love. I have to. I don't know how to not fear her And the way this text is talking about it. How to not need her. And, and when David meets Jesus, he stops fearing men. In fact, his giving away of all of these items would have humiliated him in the eyes of other leaders. Now, I know, I mean, this is one of the things where culturally the text is sort of so brimming over, it's hard to get. But what David does is the most embarrassing thing you can do. So right now, think of it. I would be the most humiliated possible when, fill in the blank, multiple by ten, that's what David did. And David only does it because he quits caring what people think. Now look... I don't know you, and that makes this easy, but I do know this about you. You all fear men terribly. You care that men know where you went to school. You care that men know what you made. You care what people think about you. All of you have this person in your head. And this person haunts you. And that person tells you what you look like. And you hate this person, but you take all good care of them. Because they tell you, you really those jeans don't look good on you. Ah, get the jeans off. And this is just really everybody else. It just tends to have the face of your mother most of the time, right? How could you go out and do this? It's an invisible person. And when David met Jesus, that person got killed. And the person quit talking. And David started doing some amazing things like loving everybody the same and treating everybody the same. Now, I wonder what that would do in our world today if we started loving everybody the same and treating everybody the same. It may only solve about 90% of the problems we have. Not maybe 95. But probably tougher for us, and we've got to be honest in this room, where particular people from a particular place, what's amazing about what David does is he empties his treasuries. A cake, by the way, is, in this case, it says a cake of dates, a cake of raisins. It's a keg. I just think the translator just can't go there today. So, there's at least, we're told... Thirty thousand men. Everybody's married in that day, because your parents paired you off. It was tons easier. John, Mr. Mr. John, have at it. Good. There you go. Just cut the whole sort of middle thing out. So we know there's sixty thousand people there, and probably their children. I mean, David becomes amazingly generous. Last two applications and I'll quit. When the gospel comes to people like you in school, you become amazingly generous with your time. Do you know how greedy you are over your time? Really? Do you? Do you get it that the thing that's most important to you is your time and you're really loathe to give it to people you don't like? In fact, you sort of choose to serve people you like to serve. And secondly, you become amazingly generous with your money. You become amazingly—you're you're all about to hear how all the churches don't have money where you're from, because the economy's sliding into it, into nothing. And you're going to hear the people quit giving. Christians give when it hurts. They give till they have nothing left. David empties his treasuries. It's probably the most amazing part of the passage. <coughs> See, ultimately what repentance does is it makes you start obsessing over Jesus and forgetting about everybody else. And in that way you begin to love Him. This is how that happens. <clears throat> my third year at Tennessee, University of Tennessee Knoxville, we had we had, had Sarah and we had, had Catherine. I think we were pregnant with Mary Simpson when I did the Sarah Jane van trade. Is that when that was? Or Mary Simpson just been born? Sometime about my third or fourth year, and so uh, I, my wife had a Camry and I had a Camry. And this girl comes in my office one day and she's and I think roommate boyfriend right. She's just um, totally okay to come in my office crying. It's just I'm trying. She's crying so much. Uh, what happened? Here's what happened. Her dad bought her a minivan. More importantly, her dad went to buy her mother a new car, and her dad had bought her mother an old minivan, and her mother stopped. The dad gave Sarah Jane the minivan and made her drive it back to the University of Tennessee. Now, I don't know what it was about the minivan in 1996, but this was the most horrible thing she could consider happening to her ever. But we need a minivan because we're, we have little people, and you have to put little people somewhere and carry them in several restraint systems. So I said to Sarah Jane... I'll trade you the Camry for the minivan. See, the guys already get this illustration. Girls are still struggling with it. I mean, minivans are big and safe. What's wrong with that? You carry a lot of stuff in it. But the guys get this immediately, instinctively. So, I traded her. Now, the trouble with this minivan, this is true. It, they painted those particular Chrysler year with this North Carolina blue paint that faded to purple. No lie. There's articles about this. They left this thing out. So, essentially, I traded a nice Camry for a purple minivan. So, um, ultimately, I I bought my wife her own minivan and I began to drive the purple minivan and to this day, I miss that car. But this is what happened every time I picked up a guy student. He would get in the car and go, like, really, you traded this for a Camry? Like, it became a legendary, unbelievable story. Like, each generation of freshmen would hear, you know, John traded a Camry for a minivan. Now, what, why was this true? Because all a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior guy can think about is a girl. And secondly, how he might one day theoretically pick up a girl if he ever got around to, to asking her out, so that won't happen. But when he thinks theoretically, when the theory of asking a girl out comes up, he has to picture himself pulling up to his dorm. And the one thing he can't picture himself doing is pulling up to her dorm in a minivan. Slide them. Come on in, honey. Slide the door closed. Right Now, guys, just... They'll go, they'll go on a date with you in the minivan. Trust me, this is not the hindrance you think it is. <clears throat> and all the guys would ask me the same question. I mean, several guys almost played it like it had been written. They would get in, they'd ask me about the legendary story, they would turn and face out the window, and then they would turn and ask the same question. Dude, how'd you do it? I mean, it's easy for me. I'm married. Seriously. I'm not driving down the strip trying to get girls to look at me. Hey, honey, how you doing? <laughs> when I go home every day, three little people run out in love on me. And one big person invites me to the house to work harder with her. But that's good. So uh, my people love me. Come on, that was funny. Um, when I go home, there's people kissing on me. And they never seem to notice my car. They never think, you know, I just don't know if I can be your daughter anymore if you're going to be driving that. (laughs) It, It would never occur to them to think of me in reference to my car. See, the people that love me are so powerfully in love with me that I don't care what college students think. And I would tell my college students this all the time don't confuse me for somebody who you think don't confuse me for somebody who cares what you think I don't I know who loves me I know who's thinking about me and see that knowledge frees me see Jesus is trying to tell you how much he loves you So that you'll be free to be His. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank You that You died in our place. And that for all the shameful things that are true about me, You bore them in Your body, that I might have repentance unto life. Please make Your love so powerful to me, and to everyone here listening, And that it would be all we think about so that we might be free to really love others. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Huh.